Wait, don't skip this. We have launched the Folly Coffee Hot Sauce Kickstarter. Go to follycoffee.com slash kickstarter now. We only have one week for the early bird specials. Don't miss out. Disregard this terrible audio quality. I needed to get the message out. Follycoffee.com slash kickstarter. Go there now. Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 54 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. <laughs> I am here with Niall Flynn, executive chef at Hewing Hotel and Tullabee in uh, the North Loop of Minneapolis. And this is your first podcast, you're telling me. This is my first podcast. All right. Uh, you know, I like to talk as it is, but a little uh, nerve-wracking being recorded. So you know. I'm going to have you point that mic just a little bit more towards your face, just like that. There you go. And we are now set. So I was reading through your bio, and... If I were to ask you, what is like the one thing that might stick out the most to somebody that's reading your bio about your background in food and beverage? What do you think it is? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know. Kind of, you know, randomly maybe traveling like uh, for about two years there. I kind of just took some time away from the kitchen and kind of bounced around some farms in Northern California and Southern Oregon and uh, didn't really have a direct game plan. Kind of was just a nomad, but just met some good people along the way and, uh, you know, some of the best two years of my life. Because there's one thing that stuck out to me the most, yeah. and that would be that you spent time with monks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that was a weird one. Uh, it was a good time. So, like, oh, a couple of years back, I was, like, reading a Detroit Free Press article where I'm from. I want to I press pause on that and just leave that nugget there. That yeah. At some point in your food career, you spent time with monks. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So let's start at the beginning and have it lead up to that and where you are now. So how did you get your start? You're a Detroit native or in the Detroit area? Correct, the metro Detroit area. Yep. So how did you get your start in food and beverage that led you to being executive chef to where you are today? Um, you know, at first it was kind of just, uh, it's just a job to you know get money in my pocket. I started when I was 15, uh, flipping burgers at Wendy's, you know, always fresh, never frozen. That's where and, all the best chefs get their start. Right, so working the grill there. Uh, I probably worked there for about six months and, uh, my sister's good friend was a chef of a local country club in my hometown, and he literally just needed a dishwasher, and he's like, hey, come wash some dishes for me. Like, randomly, I had a day off, and he's like, some guy didn't show up, and he's like, I need you. I rolled in at 8 p.m. at night, and there was just dishes piled on the floor just for, like, hours of work. I think I was there until, like, 3.30 in the morning. I was like, God, is this, like, is this what it's going to be like every day? And, uh, you know, he offered me a job, so I quit, quit Wendy's, quit the burger <laughs> flipper, and... Uh, you know, from there, I kind of worked for him for ooh, the next four or five years, right? So he kind of took me under his wing and showed me the basics of uh, cooking and how a kitchen operates. And uh, really, that was my intro of, like, almost culinary school. Right? When you started washing dishes, did you have the end goal of, I want to be a cook, I want to learn, or was it just something that happened as you... It just kind of happened. I was, uh, you know, I just needed a job. I was young, 15, and uh, wanted some money for myself, you know, instead of... Uh, doing landscaping work or helping out the neighbors or whatever. So uh, his name was Bill Given, was my chef. I'm uh, still great friends with him and stood up in his wedding last year. Um, so, yeah, no, I did not have the end goal. I don't think I really knew I wanted to be a chef until I was about 20 years old. So, um, yeah, I took a vocational class in high school, though, so went from Wendy's to uh, washing dishes at the country club, um, you know, moved my way up to prep cook, to line cook, eventually sous chef under him. Uh, like I said, he really taught me the fundamentals of, you know, simple things like 
proper knife cuts, julianning, whatever, uh, tasting, all that. And I took a vocational class in high school. Um, so that was a lot of fun, and that kind of, like, brought it up and really, you know, gained my knowledge. But after that, I, uh, you know, I did some odd jobs. I was doing landscaping. I worked in a steel mill for a little bit. Uh, that was no fun <laughs> whatsoever, not, not my style. So I, uh, after the country club, I applied for a job at a down, uh, a restaurant in downtown Detroit called Michael Simon's Roast. Um, it was in 2010. So really I would say the food scene in Detroit right then was just getting started, right? And this restaurant roast was kind of the beginning of it all, I would say. Uh, the executive chef there was Andy Holiday, and I started it. I just applied, and he's like, I require a stage. And I didn't know what a stage was at that point. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, yeah, it's just like a free work day. It's kind of like a tryout for a sports team or whatever. I'm like, what? And I like started studying the cuts of pigs and like all this other stuff. And I basically just went in and shucked oysters and cut tartare for all day. And I'm like, all right, I can deal with this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he gave me an opportunity and, uh, you know, he was the one that really kind of set my mind like oh wow i can take this as a career take this seriously and, yeah because uh, you said it's 20 years old when it started to become like oh this could right you start to actually begin to enjoy it is that what created that moment yeah i'd say uh <clears throat> andy uh he's a good friend and a mentor of mine right i worked for him for about five years really sparked that interest in me really kind of gave me uh the knowledge and the confidence to like move forward with it what, what kind of food was roast uh what was the food program like there so it was mostly it's a steakhouse they had their own charcuterie room um they're very nose to tail eating. Andy is a very farm table type of guy, and he really helped kind of bring that to Detroit. Uh, he was from Toledo, Ohio, and moved up. And so, yeah, like we had our own dry aging room, you know, aged whole cuts of ribeyes, New Yorks, anything ducks, right? Um, and then charcuterie was the big focus also. So, as guard manager, uh, technically, you know, Garmo as they call it, uh, you're in charge of the pantry. So you're in charge of preserving everything. You're in charge of the charcuterie board. You're in charge of the cheese board. Obviously shucking lots of oysters, um, salads, all that. So when I started, he really took the time out of his day to show me how to break down a whole pig, utilize the whole thing. Uh, and that really sparked my interest, I'd say, was like that whole nose tail movement and uh, butchering pigs. I was like, this is sweet. This is so fucking metal. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, from there I, I pulled him aside and I was, you know, I was in college at the time and uh, going to school just for business. And I was like, hey man, I think I want to go to culinary school. Um, you know, kind of switch roads. And he's like, listen man, kind of a waste of time and money. He's like, just find the right guy and uh, you know, stick to it, keep your head down, and you'll do fine without going. So uh, he really, like I said, him and his sous chef uh, Nick, who I'm still good friends with Nick Ellswick, uh, really took the time out of their day to kind of like mold me or shape me as you would say right so um, i stuck with them for a while like i said five years they when i left roast andy left and opened up his own restaurant it's called seldom standard it's in midtown detroit um so when he left i also left roast i went through all the stations at that point and uh was kind of a junior sue almost and signed on as a sous chef to open up his restaurant with him which was uh hell of a two years that i was there I was kidding. Yeah, yeah so from from a five-year period of going there to learning about it to going to sous chef and opening a new place did you feel like going over to solden and opening the new place did you feel prepared for it did you feel like you were ready or was it like what kind of experience was that in opening a brand new place just like really just five years professionally in the uh like when you really started to take it seriously right so uh obviously still pretty fresh and green and a lot i didn't know um opening a restaurant is as any chef will say, is one hell of a task, right? Um, and they really say that, like, 
you know, you don't really find your stride or like who you are as a restaurant, you know, at least until you know, between year one and three. So, um, was I prepared? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, did I give it my all? Yes. And we had a good group and that's, you know, what really makes life easy. It's like when you got a good crew that works well together, everyone wants the same end goal and everyone wants, you know, to do well and, uh, they care about what they're doing. So, uh, it was one heck of a learning experience for me and, uh, I'm glad I got that under my belt. And so, yeah. You ended up on the West Coast at some point. How long after opening Solden did you end up on the West Coast, and what brought you out there? So when Andy was opening up Selden, uh, you know, I called him up one night, and I was like, hey, man, I want to join the team. I was still at Roast. Uh, I was a sous chef there, actually, already, under a different chef, Dan Campbell. And uh, I was like, hey, I want to jump over and join, you know, you and Nick and Evan, who's his business partner, and open up Selden. And he's like, all right. I was like, but, you know, I'm also trying to bounce around and move. You know, I got to put away some money, you know, kind of, uh, you know, being a cook your whole life. You're never really you're always scrounging by, right? Um, so he's like, yeah, you know, just promise give me a year. And I gave him two. And uh, at one point I was just like, hey, you know, I want to get out and do some other things. I want to do some traveling. So uh gave him, you know, a good two-month notice, uh, find a replacement for myself. And uh ended up going to Southeast Asia for about a couple months with some old friends of mine. And uh, that was cool. They were great, man. Um, my parting gift from Selden, Andy and Evan, they actually gave me a $250 voucher to eat at basically any restaurant I want, right? So um, I could just call them up and just be like, hey, I want to eat at this restaurant. They'd like call up with their credit card. And I was like, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. It's a learning experience. So from Southeast Asia, we kind of just backpacked around. We went from Thailand to Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, Japan, uh, just tasting everything, you know, scuba diving kind of anything cheaply right i'm trying to save some money <laughs> so from there i had some buddies out west already in northern california and uh they were kind of doing the wolfing program so it's a international program like working on an organic farm um you pay a membership it's like 200 bucks and you can kind of find these farms all over the world right and they either some pay you some just like make you work for food and shelter and stuff so uh my buddy is working on like this vineyard in mendocino and uh, he was moving up north to kind of go to this, like, 5,000-acre cattle farm where they did all sorts of stuff from, uh, you know, they had a small vineyard up there. Uh, they had lots of goats, lots of cattle. Wait, let's hold up for a second. <clears throat> so you're from Detroit. You yeah. go out to Southeast Asia for two months. Did wh- What inspired that decision? Did you speak the language? Did anybody in your group speak the language? How did you get around? <laughs> no, honestly, it was uh, one of my oldest high school friends. you just said that, like, I- I'm like, oh, I'm going up north for the weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It was, it was extremely random. Uh, <laughs> one of my buddies was just like, hey, man, we're going to Thailand. Uh, we're leaving in two weeks. You want to go? I was like... No man, I have a job and a career. Yeah, I can't really do that. He's like, no, like, come on. I was like, I can't just give it two week notice. And he's like, well, we're doing it, and you're coming. I was like, I'll be out there in two months, man. I was like, I got to give a proper notice, get my life together, all that stuff. So uh, I talked to Andy about it, and uh, I was like, hey man, you know, I'll give you you know six to eight weeks, and then I'm out. So I literally my last day at Selden. Closed down the restaurant, went out for some beers with the guys. The next morning, I woke up, caught a flight at 6 in the morning, and flew into Bangkok and just uh, met up with some buddies, and we kind of just, like, you know, stayed in some Airbnbs wherever we could, uh, couches, yeah, wherever. What was that like? Was it what you expected, or was it? It was an eye-opening experience, for sure. Uh, It was good. It was my first time out of the country besides Canada. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I could swim to Canada where I grew up from, but... uh, uh yeah it was definitely an eye-opening experience it was 
you know, we met some cool people from all over the world, uh, different cultures. Any chance we had, we were trying to cook with anybody, whether it was like uh, old grandmas. Like, on the, we did this like fishing tour boat and catching marlin and stuff off the coast and going back and having them break down and, uh, you know, having the grandma of the house cook up and just kind of like not understanding a word she says, but watching, <laughs> watching everything she does was, uh, and like videotaping it, taking notes and everything. Uh, it was definitely different. We never really had an agenda. We were kind of just like, all right, tomorrow we're going to go to Phuket. Were, you, were your friends, uh, food people as well? Uh, no, they were not. Okay. So, yeah. No, I, was, I was the only industry ones like a, uh, a poker player. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a weird, like movie pl- pitch. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, it was interesting. Uh, and you know, we kind of went till we basically almost ran out of funds, you know? Yeah. Um, and then from there I was like, all right, I just want to keep you know learning, growing and seeing some of the things. So I had that opportunity to go out West and I went straight from Asia to California. So, so, so then you're back to your, where we were, you're in the wolf program is what it's called. Yep. Uh, with the Mendocino farm. Is that where you ended up? I ended uh, up in Humboldt County. Uh, I never went to Mendocino. My buddy uh, moved up there from there and started out at this farm. Uh, This guy ran it named Tate, and it was was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. I fell in love with it, right? It was uh, on the end of Lord Ellis Summit, which is the last mountain range in Northern California before you get to Oregon. And like I said, he had 5,000 acres, so he had you know cattle, goat, uh, pigs, everything you can name it, huge vegetable program. Grew wines, grew weed, grew every anything you can think of, right? Um, so yeah, he just he had this great sustainable house, all solar powered. Heat was all ran off wood, you know. Um, so you know, I'd split wood all day. I would do whatever I had to do, uh, help harvest grapes. Uh, you know, one of the highlights was definitely like birthing a goat and <laughs> feeding these goats uh, and like raising them, and then you know, eventually uh, having a goat roast. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, it was it was a good experience, and from there I just kind of met some other farmers and went to Southern Oregon and did the same thing. Um, and yeah, really, just they weren't certified organic because, as I'm sure most know, it's uh, it's expensive to get certified yeah. organic, right? So, but if you have the same practices, it's uh, you know is what really matters. I so. think people are starting to catch on to that a little bit more because we run in the same thing with coffee, where it's like, is this certified organic? And you're like, this farm or this farm in Ethiopia can sell all of their coffee every year. Why would they pay extra? just to have the certification if it's the exact same thing right and you're just you know it's all about doing it right right you know and just doing it fair and uh yeah supporting the people that do yeah, so. How, so how long were you doing that in the wolf program oh man i lived uh i picked up a 95 chevy uh falcon van and i was living out of that kind of <laughs> like uh probably about yeah, like 15 months. Right? So, so you're living in the van while you're doing this whole farming program? Yeah, which was great. And I... Uh, what year was this? Uh, I think it was 2016, maybe. Okay. So, so you're ahead of this uh, van life becoming all trendy and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't really plan that one out. It kind of yeah. just like fell on my lap. I was like, yeah. And it was nice because I... Uh, before that, I was driving an old S10 truck, man. I didn't have an exhaust on it. That thing was just shooting, you know, California, probably not good, but it's... <laughs> Yeah, it was rough. So I got a deal on this van and kind of just uh, went with that, right? And kind of <laughs> brought it where it went. So, and then some, uh, you know, life issues brought me back to Michigan for a minute and uh, kind of picked up a truck there and just lived out of a truck. And that's how I met those monks. And, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I bought the truck and then that's where I met those monks. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> so <laughs> after, after California, I, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was 15 months. The winter gets pretty brutal up there, obviously. And, um, uh, 
my mom passed away, so I came back to Michigan for that and uh, bought a truck, and I was kind of hanging around, wanted the next move. I think my plan was to try to move to Spain, and uh, uh, I just got a truck from a friend for cheap, and I was like, you know what, I'll just go up north. So I drove to northern Michigan. I uh, worked on a goat cheese farm for a minute. It's called Idle Farms. It's uh, up on the west coast of Michigan. Um, you know, just connected with friends who connected me with kind of did the same thing, not necessarily through woofing, but just bounced around different farms, uh, a lot of hiking trying to learn what I could. And I remember I read this article in the Detroit free press, like five years earlier about these monks that like used to be down in Detroit and they like started this, uh, this church and they moved to the UP up in Copper Harbor or Eagle Harbor, which is like one of the Northern, it is the Northernmost tip of the upper peninsula. And, it's 750 acres and they just forage berries all day and just kind of made jam. And they had this little shop on the side of the road that they sold jam and then they expanded into like making candies and cookies and pastries and stuff. I'm like, dude, that'd be so cool. Like I want to meet these guys. Like they can't say no, they're monks. They have to let me stay. (laughs) (laughs) What? Like, you know, so, um, I honestly just, yeah, drove up there and like, I was like a day away and I shot them an email. I looked at their website. I was like, Hey guys, you know, I'm Niall. Uh, I'm in the area. I read about you guys a couple of years ago. I was wondering if I could come hang out for a little bit. And like I said, I feel like they can't say no, right? So uh, <laughs> Father Basil was the head of it. Uh, there's five of them there now. And uh, he said, yeah, come on by. And they gave me my own cabin to stay. And, uh, you know, woke up every morning, made breakfast at like 5 a.m., um, ate dinner, and like their house is absolutely gorgeous right on lake superior and it's just like yeah it's beautiful and like their routine their daily routine is you know amazing obviously they work very well together and it's just the five of them uh running this little boutique candy jam pot the shop is actually called the jam pot Mm -hmm. so and they get like the locals go out and forage berries for them and uh the 750 acres they acquired is just bustling with all sorts of foraging you know um so that was really cool to see and really kind of I, before that, you know, I can identify berries. Was, you never know what one you're going to eat or yeah. what's going to happen to you. So I uh, learned a lot about that. And, yeah, they just put me up for a couple of weeks. And uh, they were super hospitable, super nice. They cooked really good food. They were really into food. Uh, you know, I think I taught uh, Father John how to make kombucha. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just kind of picked the brain. And then from there um, – kind of the end of my nomad days i guess i think i was like 2017 by then and uh, i got a phone call from an old co-worker who was the pastry chef at a new hotel opening up in detroit uh it's called detroit foundation hotel it's the sister company to the hewing hotel mm-hmm. and uh so they were looking for a sous chef uh under this great chef named thomas lentz and obviously i heard about him he's uh kind of he's a big big name coming into detroit right mm-hmm. and uh I was like, I don't know, man. I'm trying to move to Spain. I'm up with these monks right now. I was like, you know, life's not bad. Like, and uh, that sentence. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just like, <laughs> continue. Yeah. So, uh, Duncan Spangler's the pastry chef. Uh, he's still with them. Uh, put me in contact with Chef Tom, and I liked everything about him. I liked his background. Uh, he's, you know, he's one heck of a pedigree, and. Uh, I felt like it would be a good jump in my career to join teams on there. So went down, met with him about twice over coffee, talked about his vision for the restaurant, kind of what he's there for, and, uh, you know, what I could take away from him and learn. 
and you know, gave me a shot, gave me a stage and a tasting, and hired me on as sous chef. So, and then uh, from there, I grew to be his executive sous chef, and uh, stayed with him for about two and a half years. So. <laughs> And a, a stage is that's what, just like almost like a tryout, like a free, a quote unquote, free day where you're going and just kind of showing. Correct. Show your skills. Yeah. You know, show your knife skills. Obviously, different chefs do it differently. Some, you know, walk in to see how you cut an onion, organizational skills, yeah. uh, work ethic. You know, your speed. Um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of chefs, including myself, I've staged at restaurants just to learn. Right, mm-hmm. not necessarily that you want a job. You just want to kind of see how they're doing things. Um, you know, I've heard of some stages go for months without getting paid under like high end, you know, high end restaurants, whether yeah. they put you up and stuff and they feed you or, you know, you're like you said, you don't want a job. You just want to learn. So, um, not always the case if you're just a line cook and you're not really making the most money. Yeah. So, you know, so you're there for two and a half years at some point you spent time in France. Is that correct? Yep. So, chef, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, a couple years back. So Chef Tom, uh, Thomas Lentz, he has a pretty good French background. He worked for Robichon, Joel Robichon, a well-renowned French chef. Uh, he was his first American chef to run one of his restaurants out in Vegas. Um, so Tom, I, he really kind of brought my career to the next level, really like embedded me, the professionalism, discipline, uh, especially running a hotel, which is a lot different than a mom and pop place right yeah so um but going out to france i uh you know i've always been trying to at the end of the day being a nomad i was trying to travel right and like just gain knowledge from anywhere you can so uh i submitted an article to james beard foundation they have a grant called the jean louis paladin grant uh jean louis was in old school french chef i think he came over here to america at the watergate in like 19 89 maybe or 87 or something and before jean louis came over really uh he really brought over like sourcing the best ingredients right like finding scuba divers to go pluck scallops off the bottom of the seafloor for him you know driving 200 miles an afternoon just to go check out this pig to see if it was quality enough for his you know hams uh really getting farmers to grow the vegetables that he wanted and kind of bringing that Nouvelle uh, Cuisine, as it's called, New Cuisine, uh, to the United States. So he uh, he passed away in the late 90s, and the James Beard Foundation started a uh, scholarship foundation called, it's like a work study for working chefs, and they basically give $5,000 to a qualified chef to go study in an area that they want to. Um, so somehow I got the grant, and... Uh, they gave me five grand and I got to pick my itinerary. So I chose to uh, go work under Kate Hill. She's an American that's been living in the south of France uh, for probably like 30 years now, right? And <clears throat> she's amazing. Her and her good friend, Dominic Chapelard, uh, he used to be an old principal teacher and started pig farming. And his philosophy and intelligence is just amazing, right? And the way they do it. So I decided to go over there. Um, and stay with her. Her place is called Camont. She calls her farm Camont. So, yeah. Um, I stayed over there for a little over a month, I think. And I just bounced around. I went up to, you know, Normandy. I went to where my grandma was born in Cancal, which is the uh, uh, oyster capital of France. <laughs> so I uh, ate a lot of oysters, had a good time, and then went down to the south of France and kind of learned uh, Kate's philosophy on pig butchery and curing and uh, 
you know, waking up, going to the farmer's market every day and just kind of seeing that. And she had uh, a really good crew there. And one gentleman, his name's John, uh, another American guy, same age as mine. We're uh, very high, highly skilled. Um, learned a lot from this guy. He basically cook us lunch and dinner every day and just for like being able to stay with Kate and learn. And uh, yeah, it really took in kind of locality and using seasonal ingredients from over there with them, uh, which was awesome. It was a great experience. And I made some good friends and uh, yeah, so it was cool. And what, what point do you end up in Minneapolis? So I went back after France, like I said, made some good connections, kind of uh, went back to the hotel and, uh, you know, just kind of looking at next moves, right? So getting, you know, um, was the executive sous chef. We were doing great. I had a great team at the foundation. Uh, but, you know, just kind of looking to grow myself and exploring options. So um, I think Spain was off the question at that point. <laughs> uh, so I, I was in discussion with some buddies about opening our own spot in Detroit. Uh, a friend of mine acquired a building and, you know, did the business plans and got quotes and all that. And I just said, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm ready to own a spot right now. Uh, and so I, the culinary director of Aparium, which is the management ownership company of the Hewing Foundation, they, uh, they manage eight properties right now, manager own, and I believe they're opening five more. Um, so the culinary director, Evan, uh, was kind of like, hey, you want to join task force and kind of uh, help whether you open hotels, kind of go in and just show the new people like the Aperium standards and the Aperium way. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. I get to bounce around in new cities, check out new hotels. Uh, you know, that'd be cool. So I did that for a few months and uh, a position opened up at the Hewing and uh, Chef Evan kind of saw it fit for my background. Um and, you know, went out, did a tasting, met with the owners and uh, enjoyed the city and really enjoyed the restaurant. The program there is amazing. It's a beautiful spot and decided to join on January 1st, 2020. Really good timing. <laughs> great timing. Yeah, great timing <laughs> to move to a new city and right. start a new food pro- program <laughs> at a new place. Right. So it's like opening a restaurant, right? Right. You don't really find your stride until, uh, you know, like I said, between year one and three. Yeah. So uh, we've had... <laughs> Clearly, a couple pumps. In the <laughs> so you said it, it seemed like a good background fit for you. What, what what kind of things are you planning to do or doing at Hewing and Tolby that they saw as like a background fit when you're talking about the food program there? Um, so the Hewing Hotel has a butcher room in the basement. Um, they started. It's awesome. It kind of feeds the food. Can you explain there. what a butcher room is? So because it sounds, program, it right? sounds sexy. It is <laughs> extremely sexy. You should come see these hams. <laughs> um, yeah. Love it. Every morning I just sit there drinking coffee, staring at them every morning, um, <laughs> sing to them a little bit, whisper them nice things. Um, so the butcher program kind of feeds directly feeds into the menu there. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, they have a dry aging room, so dry aging on primals. Uh, you get, you know, the butcher before us, like, would get half cows, a uh, couple pigs a week. So really get in a whole pig and break it down and kind of take the cuts from and run it into whatever special. So some of the items on the menu are kind of very vague instead of being like, oh, you know, pork chop. It's kind of like pork. Like, what what cut are we doing? Mm-hmm. Okay, we only have so many chops from this pig. Uh, you know, then you're going to the copa, which is the neck muscle, which is my favorite cut. And uh, um, really just kind of playing off of that, you know, taking the hams and curing them or taking the scrap and turning it into sausage and sausage on the menu. 
Um, really, like I said, back to that nose tail philosophy that I learned from uh, Andy, which got me into cooking. Yeah, you know, into taking this serious as a career instead of just a job. So, uh, and it's always been my interest, and that's you know going back to the Jean Louis Paladin grant. You know, I decided to go to France because I wanted to learn more about that and dive more into it. Um, so, like I said, it really fit my background. Um, you know, I didn't really know a lot about whole beef butchery before I came here, and I'm still learning, believe me. Um, but, you know, that's it's part of the ride and the road, um, always learning and growing. And uh, so, yeah, really just trying to take that and do whatever we can to use everything we can, be sustainable. That was weird. Backpack <laughs> fell. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, like I said, it's kind of like it's a very farm-to-table restaurant and, uh, you know, big big philosophy of mine Mm -hmm. and so yeah my tasting menu for the owners kind of revolved around that and growing that and i hope to expand the butcher program and uh move forward and kind of bring more local ingredients to minnesota natives and people in the north loop so yeah because it feels like it's a bit of a transitionary period right now with uh hewing hotel and tolby obviously covid closes everything down and this is a few months into you being here and probably excited to get things going and really fully ramped up what is it like now because you're reopening pretty soon here is that correct yeah uh tulipy won't be opening anytime soon i think we'll um in 2021 sometime okay but uh the finer dining concept i think we're gonna hold off and keep it a little more casual right Mm -hmm. um kind of our bar and lounge so normally we have three outlets in the hotel uh technically four so we have our tulipy which is our main dining room a little more fine dining kind of lakes and woodsy uh like i said really utilizing that whole animal mm-hmm. right um i always love to like how do i put it uh if i put a caesar salad on the menu i'm gonna put some crispy pig ears on there because if you want to eat a caesar salad i'm gonna make you eat some pig ears right? <laughs> <laughs> so you really don't have an option and they're gonna be delicious yeah. right so it's kind of kind of sneak that in there sometimes because some people are like oh pig ears you or like you know escargot like everyone loves gnocchi right so it's like you see a gnocchi on the menu it's probably the number one selling thing why not put some snails in it and make some people eat some snails right <laughs> it's like, it's, uh, you gonna learn today right <laughs> it's gonna be good so, um so yeah we're holding off on the, the tool be concept but we're on our barn lounge concept uh which recently we only had one outlet open so normally it's tool be our main barn lounge on the main floor and then we have a rooftop access um so we've just been doing outdoor dining uh, just until we kind of get the feel for it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was snowing on my way here today. So. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> so and then you have this pop up with Ia coming up. How did how did you uh, come about that? And how did you how did you meet Ia? Oh man, bang! By what the a way. cool yeah, guy. Bang. By the way, like yeah, he's dope. Chill, yeah, chill, <laughs> chill as hell. Uh, he is. Uh, so obviously, I didn't know many people here. Right? Uh, absolutely nobody when I moved here. Yeah. Um, a couple people from I used to stay in Brainerd. Uh, for three summers back in the day um but so eric eastman <clears throat> he's kind of uh it seems like he does everything at minnesota ice so um very nice guy super sociable and i met him through our beverage director uh rosie and you know he's friends with Yeah, and he kind of was just like hey man i want you to meet this guy and maybe we can do something so introduced me to Yeah, really got off and kind of just shooting ideas off the winter's coming the winter's cold here um and you know people are kind of probably intimidated by dining indoors right now yeah so um just talking about ideas and the alley behind the hewing and martin patrick is absolutely gorgeous and so it's like hey let's do something out there so 
all winter. Hopefully, uh, every Thursday we'll be doing a pop up, and you know, he has got these sweet clay pots that he cooks over. Uh, you know, he's got some yakitori grill, and kind of you know, bouncing off the tulabi and hewing philosophy. We have all wood grill, all wood hearth. Um, so we're like, let's just do some small bites. We can build an ice bar out there, you know, uh, when it gets cold enough, and you know, just try to keep people outside and put some heaters out there and a fire. So, yeah, really, just shooting ideas. Just sat down and. I mean, he is very outgoing and super nice guy, and it's been super helpful with, uh, you know, whether it's sourcing ingredients or whatever. So, yeah, uh, we open October 29th, next Thursday. So tickets go on sale this Thursday, the 22nd. Uh, you can find them at the Hewing website or on the Hewing Instagram. The, uh, the link will be there. And, yeah, wait to see what uh, what's it coming. So. Yeah, that'll be exciting. How are you? How are you approaching the small bites you're doing there? Is it kind of a collaborative effort between you two, or how are you deciding? Is it going to be rotating weekly too? Yeah, you know um, whether it's you know both of us just kind of pick our own thing, and uh, you know, like I was like, hey man, you know, I got some I got some salmon that's aging downstairs that I kind of just threw up, and it's been there for about two weeks. It's about at its peak, which is twelve to eighteen percent water loss. Um, so I need to do something with this, right? Like whether I put it in my bar and lounge menu or. I was like, if you want to do something, so we're both kind of, you know, discussing the menu. I won't get into the detail. It's for you to find out. <laughs> um, and, yeah, whatever we have, whether we got some, like, duck hearts, you know, from one of our purveyors or something or, you know, some extra, you know, scrap from the pigs that we get, make a sausage or something or meatballs, um, you know, kind of just play it by ear and change it up every week. And hopefully it brings some more people downtown yeah. and shows them that it's not – such a bad place to be right now. Yeah. In terms of the people that are dining frequently at Hewing Hotel, is it a lot of the hotel guests that's the majority of your business? Or are you finding people local coming in as well? A lot of local locals. Um, you know, I think hotels all over the world are struggling on occupancy and everything else mm-hmm. right now. Um, so we do get a lot of locals, and obviously we want to offer uh, a food and beverage outlet to our guests. So, you know, if it is cold out or whatever, they don't have to go out and source or get to go. So, um definitely a lot of locals and you know the outdoor dining will it's coming to an end mm-hmm. and so we'll see uh we open up tomorrow for indoor dining so um I'm expanding my menu a little bit probably two times as much around 20 items and just trying to utilize that open fire grill and hearth a little bit more so in your experience have you found people to be pretty accepting that the menus constantly change because of how you source your ingredients and how you're cooking or do you get people that get upset when they're like oh, i had this two weeks ago and you don't have it now what the heck you know i say well then you got to come back you know so <laughs> hopefully it just keeps drawing them in yeah um and no I, I think you know people that are educated enough to know that like hey we're trying to do this the best we can good clean fair sustainable right um they get it yeah and like so hopefully you know hopefully they keep coming back for that reason what was it like moving to minnesota did you have any stereotypes in mind before moving to minneapolis that have proven true or otherwise because the one the one i'm always most curious about is the minnesota nice uh, stereotype that's funny i've i've met some really uh (laughs) great people here who have been super supportive especially in the hospitality industry um which is awesome because you can never do it yourself right Mm -hmm. no matter how much you think you can or whatever you always have to have you know resources whether it's mentors or friends and you know i still you know shoot a group message to guys that i worked with 12 years ago you know and like hey you know i'm putting this on the menu what do you think you know oh i messed this up you know this this won't stick this you know 
sausage that's baked in a brioche is tacky around it. Like, you know, how do I, how would you get that done? So, um, just normal group messages. Right. Same you know, here. Yeah. Weird. You know, my sausage being baked in brioche is just sticky. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the Minnesota nice thing, I was like, Oh, does that just mean everybody's super nice? <laughs> I was like, wow. And I came and everyone was extremely supportive of me and extremely, uh, friendly and, you know, kind of helped me transition. Um, so, you know, stereotypes, I haven't met too many people. Other people said, you know, Minnesota Knights just means that everyone's passive aggressive. That's the next question. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's funny because I'm really aggressive. <laughs> I'm like, I just tell it how it is. I haven't had any issues with it, though. Or like, you know, literally everyone I've met has been uh, supportive in one way or another. So. I think in food and beverage, the passive aggressive, there's no space for it, especially if someone's been cooking for a long time. Like, there's no room for passive aggressiveness in kitchens. And so I've noticed in food and beverage, people can be super direct, where it's like if you're not familiar with that type of communication, it's super intimidating sometimes. Right. And like, I've experienced it before with people I work, not, you know, just like people I've interacted with when it comes to the business side of things, it's a totally different way of communicating. And uh, I think some people who are more on the passive aggressive side are like, oh, he hates me and right. like, no i just this no. is the thing that needs to be done and this is how we're doing it and all this and that yeah no, no harm or no it just needs to get done and i think so. people in food and beverage just don't worry about those things and right so it's good it's good to hear but i think just especially in the twin cities i think people just get excited about anyone that's trying to further advance the food and beverage culture and like what we're trying to do and like that's just meeting you is really cool because it's like you know you're just rocking your Detroit Lions hoodie and just like we're chi- you're an awesome chill guy but, <laughs> but then you look uh in your background and what you're doing you're like holy shit this guy's like he's been doing things like all over the country and world just like learning and absorbing and it's exciting to have someone like that in the Twin Cities to just further add to it and th- I was extra excited when I saw the collaboration with Yeah because it's like the cross pollination of ideas of between people who are both doing amazing things on their own that I think when you surround yourself with people like that, the ideas that come out of it are things that would never occur if you weren't collaborating, if you weren't like, I don't know, some people are like, oh, these are my secrets. I can't give them up to anyone or they'll know how to do it. But it's like, but if they're also collaborating with you, then you might learn something that they do that you never knew about. Exactly. And that's the way, you know, maybe you know, grills or starts his fire differently than I do, you know, or like, uh, <clears throat> you know, who prepares something different. And that's the best part and being open-minded about that, right? It's mm-hmm. not like one way or the highway. It's so many different ways to, what do they say, skin a cat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, just being open-minded and really learning from that, even just talking to people. It's uh, I'm really excited about the collaboration. You know, hopefully we can get some uh, other local chefs in there with us. Yeah, and uh, like I said, I think the main thing is to bring people downtown. It's not a bad area right now. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot's been going on this year in 2020 in Minneapolis, and uh, you know, we need restaurants need that support right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the the time that scares me is now that. The second it turned cold is where I, the real nervousness strikes that the unfortunate thing that people are like, oh, if the restaurants have survived the pandemic seven months in, then we're good. And it's like, that's just not the truth in Minnesota. There's nope. This is an entirely different level of the pandemic. That the, There's so many places that have depended purely on outdoor dining that it was like the first month people were doing all the takeout to support and we're all in this together. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, this is longer than I expected. I'm over that now. And But I'll continue to dine outside because I still want to dine out. Now that this is gone, it's kind of like that's where we're going to figure out really what's going to happen and like the support of supporting the local restaurants with the limited indoor dining it's 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 freaky it is freaky and it's a huge trickle-down effect you know down to our farmers and producers yeah so many different jobs in so many areas that rely on the hospitality industry and uh 
now more than ever, everyone kind of has to stick together and support each other. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the people that aren't in the industry, like if you want to go back and eat at your favorite restaurant, when this is all over, you know, go and support them now. Get their takeout, buy their meal kits, buy a gift card, do what you can because they might not be there if you don't do that now. Yeah, and it's it's sometimes hard to explain to someone <clears throat> that's not in the industry that it's like uh, like doing those things to you is just like, oh, yeah, I like that place. It's nice. Oh, it would be a bummer if they weren't around. You're like, this is also somebody's life work yeah. that is going into these places and these food programs and the yeah. things that's happening with it. Right. And it's, it's like when you're on the other side of it, it's just this nice little luxury that, oh, I like that place. They have really delicious food, and I would be right. bummed out. And you're like, but, but to picture it on the other side of it is, is really a, a tough thing to do. Um, but to switch to switch the vibe here for a second, this is something that fascinates me about chefs. How does your home cooking that you make for yourself, how do you feed yourself versus when you're cooking for like Hewing Hotel? Oh, man. Depends. I, you know, I would say I'd like to eat healthy all the time. That is not the case. <laughs> um, la- okay, so last night I made dinner uh, for a friend and uh, housemaid cavatelli. I, I love making pasta. Okay, it's my favorite thing. Uh, so it's just housemaid cavatelli with like a pork braise. Like rendered some bacon, threw some diced pork in there, white wine, chili flake, bunch of kale, and uh, you know some pork stock, and just cook that down. A little parmesan on top, and it's just this like spicy, porky, delicious pasta. And uh, you know, had that with uh, a surly beer actually. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so you know, or. At home, you know, like, again, uh, just another moment where you're like, yeah, I just made this. And I was like, that sounds like if I made it, I would have to tell everyone about it and be like, look what I made. <laughs> right, right, it took right. me forever. So, and I, you know, people that don't like, like I said, pasta, it's so easy to make, you know, yeah. especially like in small quantities. Like you don't need a mixer. You can just make it by hand on your countertop and a fork. It's it's just so fun eating with trained chefs versus someone that's like following a recipe because there's just little intuitive things that you can just include in these recipes that just set it off to the next level. That is, it's really exciting to see when you cook with somebody who just really knows what they're doing. Yeah. I, but it, it is funny. I've met chefs before that have these amazing food programs, but when it comes to feeding themselves, they just don't care. They're just like making whatever or just eating whatever, and it's right. really, really funny to see. I'll tell you what, I really want to buy a panini press for myself because that would make life so easy it's like <laughs> just some ham some pimento cheese couple pickles and then boom you get yourself lunch in two minutes <laughs> you're good so. so what's it been like just uh personally in, in moving to minneapolis and then the pandemic hitting because if you move in january you're probably a couple months in like how, what's it been like in terms of just like being here during this time in a brand new city because i can't even imagine Already, it's hard for everybody that have a bunch of people around them, but right. to be in a brand new city when everything all of a sudden shuts down. I'll tell you what, I got to know myself a little bit better. <laughs> so uh, when I moved here, I, I stayed in the Hewing for a little bit until I found my uh, my own spot, and I found like a little studio apartment. So uh, I was probably there for a month before the shutdown, and then. Uh, so yeah, you know, at first I think the beginning of the shutdown, everyone was kind of freaked out, sanitizing groceries, you know, can. All, all those things. No one knew what was going on. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I got outside a lot. I really enjoy being outdoors. Uh, I enjoy fishing a lot. I never fly fished until I moved here. <laughs> so uh, went to Bob Mitchell's out in St. Paul to fly fishing. Bought a fly fishing pole. Focused on that. Did a lot of reading. Uh, you know, you can't really meet anybody when you're not really allowed to meet anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, um you know, like I said, just kind of got to know myself, did some research myself, lots of, lots of reading, and uh, 
Lots of getting outside, bought a bike. I'm, Minneapolis, I think it's the second largest bike city in the United States. I think so. It is number one, like Portland, I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, and just kind of discovered the areas around the city and, you know, discovered how beautiful and green it is. Like, Minnehana Dog Park. Have you ever been there? Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> like, that is freaking awesome. It's absolutely gorgeous. Awful, like, I would never, I've never seen that anywhere else. Um, yeah, spots like that, it's just cool to find. So, um and then I kind of got brought back uh, to work a little bit earlier. We didn't open up. We were still closed the hotel, but I was part of this, uh, we called it the FBI group. That's an in, inside thing. It was a food and beverage innovation group. So it was myself, uh, a couple other chefs in the company, uh, you know, marketing, sales, uh, one of kind of every department and just talking about reopening and approach and how are we going to do it? And obviously every city has different regulations uh, every state. And so, yeah, just kind of brain picking from, you know, we got guys down in Kansas city, chef Tom out in Detroit, our culinary director in Chicago. Um, and just like, all right, so how can we do this and approach this the best, right. And still be sustainable. So, uh, that was a good month of that. And that kept me busy for sure. So that was nice. And, and gave me some human interaction. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, human interaction is nice. I, that, that is one of the weirdest things about this whole thing is realizing how many things that you don't even think about is not being essential. This is just something that is, just happens every day to all of a sudden not interacting. And that's – it's it, it you do learn about yourself a lot. I think a lot of people realize it's like, oh, I don't have any hobbies. I don't have anything I do on my right. own except going out to eat and going out with friends. And right. then when that goes away, I think a lot of people sat down and were like, oh, you saw everyone that's like, I bake bread now. I was just going to say, <laughs> I, I bake sourdough now. Like, sourdough loaf number 879. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through a lot of bread and I don't have anyone to give it to because right. I don't know where my friends are. Right. Yeah, and that, that that's an interesting uh, thing is like, that whole time so when i heard you moved here in january when we were meeting a couple weeks ago i was like oh yeah i can't even imagine what it was like on that side because me my my gut reaction when it went down was just like oh i'm just gonna work all the time and just uh that will help me not think about anything and you can only do that for so long until it goes on for two you know two months into it i'm like oh i am beyond what i thought burnt out could even be right and that's the point where i had to kind of be like what are my hobbies besides working <laughs> and, and that's what i that's why i like picked up fly fishing i grew yeah. up fishing and you know i wrote so many menus i made a lot of pasta i was on you know made sourdough kick myself um, <laughs> dropped it off on some neighbors you know front doors and everything but i was like hey you know fly fishing is like an, an art and it takes a lot so i kind of put some time into that and uh got my first fish like a month ago got one of those pink salmons up at the baptism river so that was a good feeling. It only took me six months. <laughs> is that how hard? I'd, yeah. I've never fly fished before. It's, it's definitely a skill. It's an art instead oh. of, you know, so it's patience is the main thing. I, so. Yeah. <laughs> six months for a fish. I think patience would be an understatement <laughs> for something like that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end on a couple questions here. What is your fate? If you could only use one utensil in the kitchen, what would it be? Oh, man. Good question. So, I mean, Obviously, a chef's knife is essential, right? But we'll skip over that, and I will say a flat-bottom bowl scraper. So <laughs> it is a – literally, I have one in my back pocket at all times. Um, essentially, they call them bench scrapers also. Bench scrapers, hard metal and, like, used for cutting dough. Bowl scrapers, plastic and a little more flexible. So just easily being able to pick your meats up from your cutting board and put it into whatever receptacle you want. Um 
from like scraping a bowl and like what do you call it again it's a, a bowl scraper i call it flat bottom bowl scraper you can pick them up from 75 cents there's nicer ones like up to ten dollars cooks of crocus hill has them in the north loop uh so i could not go a day without this thing i absolutely love it it's uh yeah it makes life so much easier it's almost like a like you know those old school steakhouses you got the uh crumb scrapers yeah like you scrape off yeah so it's, it's a larger one of that, but you can scrape crumbs with it. You can scrape your mashed potatoes out of your pot into whatever you want. You can pick up your herbs from uh, the cutting board, and I would say that's the thing I use the most, and I'll never, ever. Normally, I have one in my pocket, like, right now. It's not in there. But like, oh, that's good. It's, it's always that and a pair of... Uh, well, nobody watches the video. We'll right. say you had one right. for effect. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I have a uh, pair of scissors back there, too. I actually made a leather sheath for my back pocket because uh getting in my truck after work every day i poke so many holes in my dang seat <laughs> <laughs> so and then i think you may have already kind of dropped this in a previous one but looking at your background i wanted to ask what do you think is the most underrated cut of meat being with your butcher background it sounds like pigs is probably where you gravitate towards well i think you know it's that's a, that's a really good question um because underrated would mean that I'm not saying that this is the best cut. Because when you think of a pig, it's like, yeah, obviously pork chop is what everybody talks about. But is there a cut of meat that people don't really like? It's not popular, but you think is for pork the pork cheek, man. And people might be freaked out, but like it is the most delicious thing. And if you want to try some, come on to the healing tomorrow because it'll be on the menu tomorrow. But uh, yeah, it's 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 absolutely delicious it's but, so good know, it's fatty tender you can oh. have so much for it you know you can cure it you can make you know pig jowl guanciale out of it yeah um, i got really into like uh charcuterie and different cuts of meat when i was living in st louis there's this awesome butcher called bulliards down in st louis and i would I, at that point i was kind of like you were saying that if i heard what it was i'd be like i don't know if i want that and so i would just go in and be like don't tell me what this is, but just tell me, like, what's your favorite? What should I get? And I would go in every week and just get new cuts of meat. And then afterwards, I'd be like, what was that? And that was the one that stuck out the most was pork cheek. And that's, that's the way to go. And, like, you know, if you – so, like, a hanger steak on a cow, right? You yeah. A hanger steak? Yeah. They used to call it, like, you know, the butcher's cut because no one wanted to buy it. And so the butcher would bring it home and eat it himself, you know. But then once it gets – you know uh brought out there everyone starts using it and like the price goes up and then it's like overused it's you know kind of like kind of like overfishing you know because like, that's part of the challenge right as a butcher that there are the and like so let's just take chicken for example like you've got your chicken breast mm-hmm. and you've got your chicken wings and things like chicken thigh is way less popular how do you approach it in with the cuts of meat that are just less popular you know, different techniques, whether it's like slow cooking, marinating, curing, uh, you know, smoking, anything. And like sometimes it is trial and error and you're like, oh, man, that's, that's you know, not so good that way. I'll <laughs> uh, we'll try it this way. Um, doing research, you know, it does, how much fiber, uh, you know, sinew and stuff does it have in it? How long does it take to break down? Once well, It's going back to like what you said about just I'm putting it in this dish and you're going to have it and you're going to like it that's even right. if you don't think right. you will. Right. Sometimes you don't want to tell people they're eating duck tongue, but you're like, I'm just going to slide it in there. And then you're like, what was that? You're like, Oh, that was a duck's tongue. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Bathroom's over there. No, but, yeah. I was like yeah. having you on. He's like, dude, squirrel is delicious. I'm dude, like, I'm going to take your Did he word. talk? I literally was just talking about this yesterday. Squirrel stew is so good. That's what he was just talking about. <laughs> and I was not- like, <laughs> 
I was like, I'm sitting there going, like, I, like, I want to keep this open-minded. I want to be like, totally, I'm with you. And he kept going. I'm like, I mean, I'm sure if you say it's delicious, it, it is, but it's hard to wrap your head it's around. So, well, it's, yeah, it's so lean. I didn't get introduced to Squirrel until I lived in Northern California, where these guys <laughs> would just pop them out of the trees with a little 22. They would just be like, oh, got dinner. I'm like, what? And they would like skin it in like five seconds. And I'm like, <gasps> what are we doing? I'm like, this is sweet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but the whole, the head to toe is like just from like a environmental standpoint makes so much sense. But I think there are so many portions of the, of every animal that are so underutilized just because we've been marketed to for years that these are the normal parts to eat. These are the ones that aren't even things like uh, organ meats are starting to make a huge resurgence because yeah. It's like the organ meats are actually probably the most nutritionally like yep. beneficial parts of the animal to eat. They're full of like these minerals and fats that are like really healthy for you as opposed Correct. to like, you know, you get chicken breast uh, at the grocery store and it looks like this chicken was bench pressing 350 before they right. took it down. It's just like, and then you get like an, uh, a straight from the farm chicken breast and you're like, the funny thing is the first time I saw that, I look at that chicken breast from the organic farm that I bought at a farmer's market. And I was like, this thing's tiny. They must be doing something wrong. And I was like, oh, right. oh wait. But the, wait, right. The other one, yeah, that's the thing that's... beefing up on steroids. <laughs> yeah. Just juicing hard. And reading into that, that they make the chickens that like can't walk because they've... Oh, yeah. They're, it's they're, so much, right? There's so much mass to it. And so I get really excited when I hear about chefs like you, or, or it's like, I think he is doing a lot of the same stuff of like head to toe. And it does take someone like you. That's like, no, you're going to eat this. Well, I want it without that. No, that's, this is what we're serving you this week. It is things like that. These eye opening experiences you have. Cause I had duck heart for the first time at a pop-up of V9. And I was like, that was delicious. Right. And I would never go out of my way to order Doug Hart. I would never seek it out. But now that I've tried it, now I'm totally open to trying new things in that total vein. 100%. And so when you started butchering, was that like, I know I said this was like my last question, but now I'm <laughs> good. Butchering to me is fascinating. Was it something that you had to like get over the squeamish part of? Because there is this huge disconnect in between what we eat and where it comes from. That, right. Did you have to experience that out or had you just been around food long enough? No. And, you know, I never grew up like my dad never like brought me hunting or fishing. Uh, I more so learned that from my friends and, uh, you know, how to fillet a salmon when you catch one or a perch or whatever. Um, and I think my first time I have two buddies who have a farm outside of Lansing, Michigan, and uh they bought some pigs and they're like, Hey, what breed should I get? And they're kind of like, you know, talking to me about it. And they're like, Hey, we want to have a pig roast this weekend. Like, come on up. I'm like, all right. Like where you bring the pig to get slaughtered? They're like, we're going to do it ourselves. And I was like, I'm coming. I want to do it. <laughs> and like, so, uh, that was my first time, you know, well, that's so weird. You don't seem like a guy that's open to new experience. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it was, it was new to me. And I was like, you know, hesitant. on like, let's say pulling the trigger and then, uh, utilizing the whole thing. And it was different. And that was like my eye opener. And since mm. then I've, done a lot of obviously my own slaughtering and humanely and uh uh but if i get a flu shot i don't want to look at the needle going in my arm <laughs> i'm more squeamish but i can you know uh process my own animals so yeah yeah it's th that's a definite lost skill <laughs> when you think about it yeah um but 
I, I can't wait to try the new menu. I'm for sure going to be one of the first ones to get on that ticket of the collab between you and you. I'm super stoked for that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Man. Really glad I got to meet you, and I can't wait for things to get back to somewhat normal set. Uh, you know, Tall would be next year. I can't see. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with that program. And yeah, and like I said, you know, it takes. Uh, it's like opening a new restaurant right now, and uh, we're just kind of getting rolling. So uh, I'm excited to see what comes of it too you know just trying to find my own style of cooking my first time running my own kitchen and uh building a crew from the ground up and you know seeing where it goes and so. i definitely want to see the butcher room and dry aging room yeah I'll have to swing by sometime it's, it's a gorgeous sight. can't say, wait to so. see it um i'll end the episode there and just say have a nice day right